0: This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Insurance Professional Resources. We're pleased to have with us today, attorney Thomas Pritchard from qualified member law firm Vernus & Bowling. Thomas is the managing attorney for the firm and is based in Charleston, South Carolina. The firm also has a Columbia, South Carolina office and Thomas provides legal services for the entire state. His practice areas include construction defect, automobile liability, professional liability and product liability. Thomas is well-versed in all aspects of insurance defense and general civil litigation. His civil trial experience includes having tried more than 60 cases to verdict, He has also participated in more than 250 mediations. Thomas is also a certified circuit court mediator by the South Carolina Supreme Court Board of Arbitrator and Mediator Certification. And Thomas was first certified in the year 2011. Thomas, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Today's topic is the complexity of South Carolina construction defect claims. So Thomas, for our first question, is there anything unique about South Carolina construction law?
1: Unique is, uh, I think absolutely, South Carolina construction law is to me fairly unique in that there seems to be a whole lot of creativity within the uh, plaintiff's construction bar in um, creating cases where they might not otherwise be. And I think that probably that one of the big issues there is in class action litigation, uh, South Carolina courts really don't, uh, don't look hard into preventing plaintiff's counsel from bringing class litigation in these residential construction cases where you've got multiple single family homes in a neighborhood developed by the same developer. And, um, To me, that makes it a little unique in that the cases themselves don't really lend themselves to being class cases because you have lots of houses with lots of different um, exterior cladding, lots of different issues, but yet the courts are turning them into class action cases nevertheless.
0: Thomas, what constitutes a construction defect?
1: A construction defect is any deficiency within the construction of the home that leads to a failure of any component of the home's intended uh use primarily for instance uh if uh flashing is not properly installed obviously that creates an issue whereby water intr- intrudes into the home uh, material decomposition occurs, things of that nature. So it's it can be anything from a from lack of proper flashing to lack of proper product selection to lack of proper installation of any of material component parts. Thomas, what are some
0: common building defects?
1: Well, we're we're seeing a lot of, of windows and doors especially, but always, always, always we're going to see Um, inadequate framing and flashing, particularly of rough openings, uh, again associated with windows and doors, improper installation of exterior cladding, uh, more so in the areas of masonry and brick um, than in traditional um, wood siding or even hardy siding. Now, of course, um, you know, the, the old synthetic stucco problems have sort of run their course now because they've gotten into, even though synthetic stucco is still used, the application process is different now than it was before where we saw a lot of problems
0: in the past. Thomas, are there any current trends in construction claims?
1: I think that uh, the trends are fairly consistent. Uh, Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, we certainly are seeing more window and door product claims than we were previously. Um, and it, that lends itself, too, to another issue that we see, and that is a lot of the plaintiff's bar, particularly the folks that we see on a regular basis, um, have typically not been suing the manufacturers and suppliers directly, um, especially if we've, they've got a statute of repose concern or a statute of limitation concern, they let the, um, the sued defendant, the sued primary defendant invite everybody else to the party. But lately, we've been seeing more and more attempts to, for the plaintiff to bring direct claims against some of the subs and material suppliers.
0: What types of construction claims are most common today?
1: They run the gamut in South Carolina from, um, big commercial, uh, construction problems. Uh, we're still building a lot of, uh, a lot of big buildings in the coastal environment down here. So we see a lot of, lots, lots, lots of water intrusion issues, um, mold issues, uh, those type of things. And then, of course, we've got so many neighborhoods being developed that we're dealing with a lot of um, neighborhood-wide cases. Would, I mean, to be candid with you, I think uh, they're a little bit sometimes manufactured, if you will. In other words, the plaintiff's bar will find one or two people within a neighborhood with a couple of problems and recognizing that from an economies of scale issue, it's not pro. It's not profitable to them to bring just these one or two residential construction defect cases in these big developer built communities. They go out and, and try to uh, try to gin up, if you will, more um more more customers, and so they go and and invite other people to let them come in and see what's going on with their houses. And so it just creates, it just compounds itself. And, you know, South Carolina, um, you had asked earlier, and I should have mentioned, um, South Carolina's statute of repose. Of course, South Carolina used to have one of the longest statutes of repose in the country in 13 years, and they moved it down to eight years, but we still have an exception to the statute of repose where plaintiff is able to present and prove evidence of gross negligence. Well, all you've got to do to allege gross negligence in South Carolina is to allege that there's a code violation because a code violation is per se evidence of gross negligence. Now, if the, the, it's still up to the jury to determine whether or not um, plaintiff has proved gross negligence And so sometimes you get a case that's maybe 10 or 12 years down the road from when the certificate of occupancy was issued, and yet you still find yourself having to defend that case, at least to a jury verdict, because of the statute or opposed question, and then if the jury determines that that plaintiff met its burden of proving gross negligence, then you go beyond just the jury verdict because then the jury gets to determine damages if they determine that gross negligence was not proved then they can stop there and can't deliberate further on on damages because of the statute of repose has has not been you know extended and so it's it creates a, a an additional layer of uncertainty particularly when carriers are trying to analyze the exposure and it's a hard exposure to analyze when you don't know for certain if you've got a valid statute or repose defense or not and you have to wait until the jury determines that in order to know whether or not the you know you're looking at the at a verdict an adverse verdict I should say.
0: Okay, Thomas, I'm just going to go back to something you referenced a short time ago uh, about what you're seeing in South Carolina with contractors going through. And uh, I guess sort of trying to get neighborhood uh, homeowners to kind of piggyback together. We actually had a a similar thing happen here. I live out in Pennsylvania. I have for 20-plus years. And the development I'm in, they tried to come through and claim it was hail damage to the rooftops. And uh, there were at least a handful of homes that, that took advantage of that and, and kept that contractor in business for the better part of a year, year and a half. Are you seeing it with roof, rooftops in South Carolina or are you seeing it with um, with other areas as well with those types of incidents?
1: Oh, gosh, it's, I mean, it runs the gamut. So for instance, one I was recently involved in, a big component of the early claim was that uh, the the site preparation was inadequate, such that it led to um, ponding in backyards after rain events and and causing water, you know, um, to stay in the backyards and in some instances get into the homes through door openings and things of that nature. And so that, you know, that can piggyback. Sometimes you might just have one or two houses in a neighborhood that have masonry uh, masonry um, siding and they have cracking and settling or whatever, and they get in there on that. And once they get into the neighborhood and take a look at what's going on there, there's obviously not every house in the neighborhood has masonry. Some of them might be vinyl. Some of them might be hardy. Some of them might be brick, whatever the case may be. And when I say masonry, I'm, I'm using a stone um cladding there because of course masonry could mean brick too but to me i sort of separate masonry as a stone cladding from brick veneer as a stone is another cladding and so they get in there and they start to investigate and they ask other people if they would be willing to let them investigate issues that their homes may be experiencing and pretty soon it doesn't take long to find houses that maybe you know the end dams on the windows weren't properly um done or the uh, mauling of windows is not properly done or the rough openings are not properly flashed or the building wrap paper is is cut. And, And one of my favorites, which I'll never quite understand as long as I live, is building wrap is reverse lapped such that the top layer of building wrap runs down behind the bottom layer of building wrap, which is obviously completely counterintuitive to how water management systems are supposed to work. And so they get in there and they find these defects and then pretty soon it's a class action. You know, all it takes is a few and they get a class going and then everybody is along for for a long, long ride. And of course that, you know, lends itself to most of these National builders try to have arbitration provisions in hopes of forcing everything into arbitration so that they can uh, spend less money and and less time to get a case ready for trial. And candidly, they'd rather be in arbitration because um, jurors are less sympathetic to the right side of the V, as I like to call it, than they are to the left side of the V because with the exception of the top 10% of the people in this country, most of the rest of us, our home is the uh, largest single investment we'll ever have. And so it's not a necessarily a friendly place to find yourself in, um, on the right side of the V in a construction defect case in South Carolina, because um, jurors are are typically unsympathetic. So the big builders try to force arbitration. Now, that's still an unsettled area of the law in South Carolina. We've of course South Carolina like everybody else uh, in the federal arbitration setting which of course these type of um, national home builders cases always can be can be brought under the federal arbitration act provisions because the delivery of materials and everything else affects interstate commerce. So it it triggers federal arbitration, um, provisions, but even though, you know, you're in state court. So of course, our Supreme court correctly says, Hey, we got to follow Prima paint, which is the national Supreme court doctrine, um, that requires our courts to look only at the arbitration provisions to determine whether or not they're oppressive. They can't look at the whole contract and say it's unconscionable or unenforceable or oppressive or whatever. They have to look solely at the narrow arbitration provisions. And there have been more than one instance where courts have determined that just looking at the arbitration provisions, they're unenforceable. Uh, A a recent case just uh, was a 2022 South Carolina Supreme Court case. D'Amico versus Lenar, Carolinas, and that, ironically, the Court of Appeals reversed the circuit court where the circuit court said, no, the arbitration provisions are unenforceable. Court of Appeals said, you didn't, you you, you relied on stuff outside of the arbitration provisions, and, and the Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals and said, well, even still, if you just look at the arbitration provisions, they're unenforceable because they're unconscionable. So, Arbitration is still an area that there is a large battle going on. As a matter of fact, I'm involved in a case right now where a judge ordered arbitration about three weeks ago. And then the other night sent us all an email and said he had considered one of the parties' motions to reconsider and he was wrong. He should not have compelled arbitration. So, I mean, I think even our judges struggle with it because I think we all struggle with it. What what is you know what is arbitrable and what's not. Now, of course, some of these folks don't assert their right to arbitration at the outset, and then later on down the road, they try to assert their right to arbitration. And the courts correctly, typically say in those instances, "No, no, you waived it. You you started to participate in the normal litigation process. You can't come back now and uh, um, and try to assert it." So. You know.
0: Thomas, can you tell us about the economic loss rule and how that's impacting uh, construction defect claims in South Carolina?
1: Sure. So, it South Carolina used to recognize that you couldn't recover in tort for purely economic loss, and in night, going all the way back in 1989 our Supreme Court ruled in Kennedy versus Columbia Lumber that it that economic loss rule does not prevent the imposition of tort liability upon a residential home builder when the builder violates a legal duty and that the violation of a building code or failure to undertake construction commensurate with industry standards is a violation of a builder's legal duty. So they said if they violate the legal duty, code being another, we go back to the code again. I mentioned that before on the uh, statute or oppose. Determination of violation of legal duty um, allows a homeowner or a claimant to recover in tort for purely economic loss. Um, and so it's still a, it's still something that our judges, our lawyers, our courts all struggle with. What is an economic loss that is a recoverable loss in? Tort liability. And our court, um, our court of appeals just recently addressed that again in a not, not a construction defect case per se, but it had a components of residential um, home damage. It was James E. Carroll versus Isle of Palms Pest Control et al. And it was a uh, August of this year, August, 2023 court of appeals case. And they went back into another analysis of what Um, is a recoverable tort liability loss in economic, uh, under the economic loss rule. And it's just a very, um, it's something that everybody needs to understand better because it is a dangerous component of damages in construction defect cases where a plaintiff suffers purely economic loss, i.e. diminution in value, loss of use of their home, that kind of a loss that you still have to address as a component of your construction defect cases because I can guarantee you I have, in 31 years of practicing law, never once experienced a construction defect case where there wasn't some allegation of violation of code because that in and of itself creates another avenue of damages for the plaintiff. It also creates, as we addressed earlier, a path around a statute of repose issue if they've got to otherwise have a statute of repose issue, and it further creates a path to um, the potential for um, special damages, i.e. punitive damages, violation of code. So, It's just it's an area that I think everybody needs to be familiar with in in analyzing the exposure that exists in
0: these cases. Thomas, what should claims managers be aware of in construction claims?
1: It is vital in construction claims that claims managers be on the same page early on with their counsel in getting experts involved in in trying to analyze the potential exposure to their individual insured. And frankly, 95% of these cases are cases that need resolution because they are dangerous in South Carolina to um, the defense side of the case. And so if there are opportunities to resolve early, they should be looking for those opportunities because typically, the earlier you can resolve your exposure, once you've got a handle on what the exposure is and whether or not there's true exposure, the less costly it's going to be. And I think that, frankly, there are a they're, the plaintiff's bar, the significant plaintiff's bar, the folks we see regularly in South Carolina, are very good at what they do and they know how to... Um, work these cases up. They're not afraid to spend the money to work them up. So the other side needs to not be afraid to spend the money to defend them. But the other side needs to understand that these folks are very good at crafting resolutions with individual parties on the defense side in such a way that it, if anything, broadens the exposure to the remaining defendants because, of course, we've got joint and several liability and they craft frequently releases with individual entities that are issue-related releases so they might take an issue off the table without taking the whole, the whole um, rest of the case off the table. And so then it becomes also a question of set-off and what you're entitled to in in terms of what they've recovered if you get an adverse verdict, what you're entitled to set off as a result of the verdict. And again, there's another case that, that folks should familiarize themselves with that, where they went through this again recently, and that is the case of Palmetto Point at Pease Island um, versus uh, Island Point, LLC, et al. And that was where a defendant, a roofing company, was left in the case after a number of parties settled out and they were arguing what set off they should be entitled to. And um, they the the circuit court didn't grant them Uh, The set-off, they they felt they were entitled to, so they appealed to the Court of Appeals. Again, this is a fairly brand new case. I said, let me look to see when it was decided by our court. June 28 of 2023 was decided by the Court of Appeals, where they go into another analysis of set-off, and it's it's something that I frankly think that even we as lawyers sometimes struggle to articulate uh, both to our carrier clients as well as to the court on why we should be entitled to the set-off we should be entitled to. And so that's an area that that these claims managers really need to understand because there's always danger in being the last person standing, always danger. Um, Again, let's go back to a case that that I was just involved in that just went to jury verdict about uh, two or three weeks ago and one masonry sub was left in the case and that masonry sub got an adverse verdict for $4 million. And that $4 million, frankly was probably more than the total masonry component exposure in the case was worth, but they stuck around. Everybody settled around. Them. Everybody um, got what they needed out of it. The plaintiff's counsel crafted, really good um, issue releases and and party releases and did what he needed to do such that they're now looking at this $4 million verdict and trying to either get the court to undo it with post-trial motions, or they may end up, you know, heading up to the appellate court. But that to me is a real underappreciated area of um, South Carolina. Construction defect laws, understanding the dangers of hanging around till the end of a case right before it's ready to go to trial. And then you end up either in trial and it costs you more money to settle or you get a verdict that's probably more than the exposure that you really were going to have
0: um, if everybody was there. Thomas, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Gentlemen, thank you all. I know I talk too much, but that's the nature of a lawyer.
0: You've just listened to Thomas Pritchard, managing attorney for the law firm and Bowling and their South Carolina operations. Special thanks to today's producer, Frank Bowlingle. And thank you all for joining us for Best Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash professional resources. If you have any suggestions for your future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claimsresource.